Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 950 of the Juicebox Podcast. Today on the show, I'll be speaking with Lisa. She's an adult who has had type 1 for well over 40 years. And her story sort of unfolds over a lifetime and then takes a really shocking turn. While you're listening, please remember that nothing you hear on the Juicebox podcast should be considered advice, medical or otherwise. Always consult a physician before making any changes to your healthcare plan or becoming bold with insulin. If you'd like to save 35% on all your soft stuff, I'm talking about towels, sheets, sweatshirts, joggers, pajamas, I can make that happen for you at CozyEarth.com. All you have to do is use the offer code JUICEBOX at checkout. You will save 35% off your entire order. Those of you interested in learning more about the Omnipod 5 or Omnipod Dash, check out my link Omnipod.com forward slash JUICEBOX. And if you're looking for that new Dexcom G7 or the G6, Dexcom.com forward slash JUICEBOX. Don't miss the Diabetes Pro Tip series. It begins at episode 210 in your player. This episode of the Juice Box Podcast is sponsored by AG1. I gave AG1 a try because I was worried I wasn't getting in all my nutrients, and now I drink it every morning before I get my day started. You can too. Drinkag1.com forward slash juice box. Get five free travel packs and a year's supply of vitamin D with your first order at drinkag1.com forward slash juice box. Today's episode is also sponsored by Touched by Type 1. Learn more about this great organization at touchedbytype1.org and you can follow them on Facebook and Instagram. I'll be speaking at their big event in September. Go find out more about it on their website. Do you hear that on your recording? If you need a drink of water, you should just drink your water. Don't you worry. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. But I but I have to say, I very much appreciate you asking. <laughs> uh, well, I hear, like, I know it disturbs you when there's background noise and uh, this kind of thing. So I hear it a um, lot. Well, we put up an episode today that was um, had to be recorded uh, when I was sick and the person I was recording with was sick. And oh so goodness. it took, if you could see the raw file about where the, like, you know, sometimes just dead air, like you're not speaking right now. And when I go back and look at the recording, it'll probably be quiet where you're not speaking. But I'm recording two different tracks of audio. My voice and your voice are being recorded separately. Okay. And so for the most part, you just leave the dead air and it sounds fine. This thing where she was sick and I was sick, I must have cut at it for like 90 minutes yesterday. Oh, my goodness. And it just looks like Swiss cheese because every time one of us stopped talking, we were like, <sighs> like, like breathing oh. heavy or you know, coughing or, you know, you give oh people blowing. It was yeah. just, oh, my God. The fact that you won't know that when you listen to it is is magical almost. But anyway. Well, and I think you must have some supersonic hearing, too, because a lot of times in the podcast, you'll complain about a noise that I never heard. So, um, sometimes I, think I, you... I deaden it or cut it out, even if I'm okay. gonna, even if I leave it in for you to hear it if, it, if it flows with the conversation. So I don't want people to be listening and suddenly to have themselves shocked with, um, I don't know. And there are just things that, 
like people who click before they speak, they're like, um, like they do that. That makes me crazy. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try not to do no, that. No, you, I'm sure you won't. Most people don't do it, honestly, but every once in a while you get to somebody who does and they're just every, they think and they think while they're like drawing up their tongue and then they go, well, and I'm like, oh God, stop that. <laughs> so anyway, uh, uh, so we're all good. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Okay. Hi, I'm Lisa. I'm 64 years old and I've been type one for about 45 years now. Diagnosed when I was 18, 1977. 64 years old, diagnosed at 18. You've had it for 45 years. In 77, Mm -hmm. Lisa, when I was six years old. Wow. You could have babysat me. I graduated from high school in 1976, the bicentennial year. That was the big um, thing when I graduated. Oh, we're the bicentennial class. And so, um, yeah. Did, you did, were that just end up, be- did that end up meaning a lot in your life, Lisa? <laughs> Not really, but, you know, it's on my yearbook, the bicentennial class. You know, it was a big deal back then for some reason. Well, know? well, you know, my remembrance, and I was much younger, obviously, I was like, gosh, five years old, maybe. But um, that it was like, it felt like a nationwide celebration in a world where there was no anything else. You know right. what I mean? Like if, if everybody decided to get in on a big day where fireworks would be shot and people would use, you know, streamers and everything, and it would happen, you know, pretty nationally, it, it felt huge to me, even as a little kid. Wow. Yeah. Probably to you, you were just like, let me get out of high school here. Right. Like, no, I was excited. <laughs> yeah. I was excited. What, what were you thinking you were going to do after high school? You know, I didn't know. I honestly did not know. I knew I had to make money because I was pretty early on on my own. And so that kind of has been the direction of my life. You know, I I need to make more money. So I need to do something else. And, you know, it it kind of has driven me throughout my life, Mm -hmm. you know. So and starting when I was young, because I had to support myself, you know. So um, at first, I took on a couple of I worked in a bakery and um, I worked in the liquor store right next door. So both part-time jobs and I had to work all the time to make enough money to pay my bills. And I was like, there has to be an easier way. And so that got me back to school and um, I became a dental assistant Nice. and did that for, for quite a while. And then I went to nursing school and then I became a nurse practitioner. So that's kind of driven me throughout my career. Wow. You know? uh, I know. Can I ask, um, at this moment when you're graduating from high school, do you have diabetes yet or are you about to get it? I get it on my physical exam for uh, dental assisting school. Okay. All right. So I go into my general practitioner, probably like late August, something like that, you know, right before school starts and you have to get a physical to go to school mm-hmm. and he checks my blood sugar and he said, uh, it's your brother that has diabetes, right? And I'm like, yeah. And he said, um, I think you might have it too. I'm like, what, Mm. you know, and, you know, looking back, just like so many other people on the podcast, you know, uh, I had lost weight, but I was thinking this is a great diet I'm on. I'm 
I'm finally, the, finally the whiskey and cupcakes diet is paying off. Yeah, it's paying off all those donuts I eat and I'm still losing weight. This is amazing. You know, and I had lost probably 20 pounds. Mm-hmm. I had always been a little bit overweight. Like say in high school, I was maybe 160, five foot six. So a little on the pudgy side, but I was feeling good about all of it. And then he said that. And so I lived in uh, Massachusetts at the time in Boston. And so um, I grew up in Andover, Massachusetts, a little town outside of Boston. And um, Jocelyn Clinic is in Boston. Mm -hmm. So I got sent there. I was there for an entire week of training, which I've since found out from people on the podcast and people in the uh, Facebook group that that doesn't exist anymore. I mean, Jocelyn Clinic does, but it's like a, a... quick one and a half day teaching where back then it was an entire week of residential. You live there. Yeah. They taught you what to eat. They taught you how to give shots. And, you know, I'm 18. So I'm there all by myself, you know, and um, it was a great education and a great resource to have in my area, you know, when, when newly diagnosed, you know. Hey, I want to go back and ask you a couple of questions. So Mm -hmm. uh, your brother has type one diabetes. Yeah, he had type 1 diabetes. He, is, he was diagnosed at 13, so a little bit sooner than I was. And um, because we were a sibling uh, match, uh, Jocelyn Clinic was doing all this research. That's what they do there. And um, so he and I were involved in a lot of research studies because we were siblings in the same you know, family without Mm -hmm. any um, genetic predisposition. So nobody in my family had diabetes. And so that was really unusual at that time. And I think that looking back on it, I think that was the beginning of them, you know, coming up with um, autoimmune, you know, type one diabetes. Like trying to see, they were trying to figure out where it came from because back, because it it was as simple as like, well, does your grandmom have it? No. Well, then this is crazy that you have it. Like that. That's, exactly. That was the thinking back then. I see. Exactly. It was so. It was so unusual to have siblings in the same family without any genetic mm-hmm. uh, reference to it. So. And I'm so sorry. Um, you said he had it. So is he? Passed? Yeah, he died. Yeah, he died. He was uh, 37. Wow. He had every complication in the book. Um, and if you think back to technology then, so I, I, I was kind of calculating it. It was like the late 60s when he was diagnosed. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I wasn't involved in his care per se. My mom did all that. She was a stay-at-home mom. But, um, of course, being on the outskirts of it, I, it was part of our lives, part of our everyday lives. And so um, he was a hockey player. And so being an athlete, he was, you know, had this disease that kind of limited you physical activity wise. And you were, you know, taking shots probably twice a day, I'm guessing in the morning and at night, maybe he took shots, Mm -hmm. you know, and it was clear and cloudy insulin back then. So um, fast acting and slow acting. And uh, you mix them up in a syringe. And I, I don't even know if he had a glucometer back then, you know, I'm I'm sure he was doing those pills and a test tube and looking at colors and ketones and things like that. So um, I I wonder, I often wonder if he um, could have had all the technology that we have right now, 
would he have lived a better life? Mm-hmm. Would he have availed himself of it, first of all, being diagnosed so so early on? And would he have taken advantage of it? And he could maybe still be alive today, well, you know? Yeah, but I'm assuming also the mindset must have been so much different because there's been enough people on here who were diagnosed at that time who will tell you that they were basically just told, like, look, you're not going to live very long. And, yeah. you know, uh, I mean, there's a woman on here that was told not to get married, not to have children, not to make a family. Like, don't even bother getting a job. Like, just, just you know, be a vagabond and, you know, flit around until your death. Like, what is kind of the vibe given to them by medical people. So I wonder yeah. if your mom wasn't told that, too. And then it's it, possible. And then it doesn't yeah. become like a self-fulfilling prophecy at some point, too, because you, I mean, obviously... I mean, I don't want to say obviously, but they couldn't have been doing much right if he only made it twenty-four years with it. Truly, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I'm, I'm guessing they were doing the best they could with sure. what they had. You know, you know, I would but, imagine, yeah, just, just, I mean, right meaning what would have worked, not you know what they were told. I don't imagine they were told anything valuable, honestly. Well, and he played high school. He played hockey all through high school. And I remember that being an issue because he always had a jug of orange juice. You know, that's how they treated Lowe's back then was orange juice. Mm -hmm. And so um, he always had a jug, you know, that was sitting on the bench and he'd be chugging it and and playing. Hockey's a very physical game. Yeah. And then uh, once he got out of high school, he, you know, played with his friends now and again. They rented ice and they played. He, He loved playing hockey. And my dad loved playing hockey. And so they had that together. And then uh, he got a job as a construction worker. So another very physical job, Mm -hmm. you know. And I think going through puberty with type 1, it's tough. All the hormones, everything. You know, I was 18. So that part was, was done for me, basically. You know, so. And I think a little more mature for me. Um being able to handle all the responsibility of type one diabetes, you know, and being on my own, you know, I mean, back then they just basically told you not to eat sugar Mm -hmm. and uh, take your two shots a day. And you kind of went about your business blissfully unaware of what could possibly happen to you. The fact that I've never had one complication is astounding to me, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. We're going to talk about that too. I'm just imagine your brother feeling low during a hockey game and then drinking enough juice to make his blood sugar 400 for five hours afterwards. And then you can only imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Then that cycle goes on and on and on. And that's probably how you then manage during the day. And, you know, we're busy telling people, look, you don't have to eat all the Skittles if you open the bag and he's just randomly chugging orange juice, orange juice, by the way, from the sixties and seventies, which must've been some good orange juice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure the Florida concentrate. You know? <laughs> exactly. Do you remember it used to come frozen in that little tube? Yeah, oh, of course. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You say, of course, Lisa, no one else knows what you're talking about, you know? Yeah. There always used to be a can defrosting on the sink and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it was a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. We had it with every breakfast, you know, it was like a staple, mm-hmm. you know, I'm gonna, you had I'm, to have orange juice. I'm going to describe it for people who don't know. So the closest young people are going to think of is like the tube that those cinnamon rolls come in, those really crappy yes. like breakfast cinnamon rolls or whatever they are. And so there yep. was like a tube like that. And it was in your freezer, and it just had, like, this concentrate of 
of orange juice in it, and then you would defrost it, put it into a pitcher and melt it with water and mix it up, and then that was your orange juice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Uh-huh. And you'd have to stir it with the wooden spoon and the glass pitcher. Yeah, and then as yeah, time, it was a big deal. As time went on, I remember when they would it would show up in the grocery store like pre pre mixed, I guess you know, like already ready to drink is the words I'm looking for. I I thought of that as like that that was the orange juice like rich people had, right? Yeah, right. You know, because they yeah. didn't have to melt it and mix it with water and all that. Yeah. Well, and the town we grew up in, uh, we had a milkman. And so you put out your, you had this milk box and he would come in the morning and deliver milk to your milk box. And being on the East coast, you know, the winters were harsh and uh, your milk is in, is in your milk box and it's all insulated. So it doesn't freeze. Mm -hmm. And uh, some people actually got orange juice. We never did. We weren't rich enough, Fancy, but uh, I always thought they were pretty rich to get all that. Yeah. (laughs) No kidding. (laughs) That's crazy. Okay. So my last question about your earlier life is, I mean, you pretty freely said when we, just when we started talking that you basically raised yourself. So what happened to your parents? I didn't raise myself, but uh, to a point. So my parents got divorced when I was probably mm, somewhere between 13 and 15. Mm -hmm. I've said 13 for so long, but then in recent conversations with my sister, I'm like, I think I was older, you know? So your memory fades over time. But um, anyways, uh, when my parents got divorced, Uh, My mom was a stay-at-home mom. She kind of grew up in a culture that your husband comes first and your children come second. Mm -hmm. We're an Italian uh, family, so um, divorce was just unheard of, you know. And my dad was having an affair with another woman. His secretary at work is what we were told, but she, in fact, was a, a colleague, a coworker of his. Mm-hmm. And anyways, uh, my mom just fell apart when she found out and she kind of stopped being a mom. So from like, say, 13 to 15, I pretty much ran the household. I took care of my sister, who was uh, six years younger than me. So at the time, maybe seven or eight. And, um, yeah, I was like the mom, you know? So from then on, you know, she was kind of touch and go. Um, she fell into a depression. She became addicted to Valium and Percocet and it was a nightmare. You know, she was in and out of, you know, uh, mental hospitals and this kind of thing. My sister went to live with my dad and my brother went to live with my dad. But I felt like somebody has to take care of her. Who's going to take care of her, you know? So I stayed in the house and took care of her as long as I could. And I think she really was my first patient, you know, looking back on it, you know? Was it hard to leave her when you left? Well, she found somebody else. She found another man and they got married. So I was like, hallelujah, you know, (laughs) somebody took her off my hands, you know? And so I just wiped my my hands of all of it and just went on with my life, Mm -hmm. you know? There was an evening after my father left my mom that I saw my mom giving up. And one night she just broke out a bunch of like liquor that was in the house and started drinking and my mom mm-hmm. was just not a drinker and i thought I, I was watching it happen 
And I just, I don't know how long I accepted what was happening, but I stood up. I was only 13 or 14 and I took all the liquor and I dumped it out. Mm. And, and I, I told her, I was like, we are not doing this. Like, like yeah. this is, this is not happening, you know? So, um, and she didn't drink after that, but she came from a, a family of alcoholics. And so I thought well, her father was, I should say. And, um, and I was just like, no, no, like this is not happening. And, um, I, I don't know. I might've just got lucky or maybe she was really just going to do it this one night. I have no idea, but, um, I would say that watching my dad leave my mom is probably the reason why as an adult, because everybody who's been married knows like there's a moment and I don't care. I really don't care who you are. There's a moment where you're just like, am I really just going to do this for the rest of my life? Like, is this what, you know, right. you get into a fight or something, or, you know, you have a disagreement or a bad day turns into a bad week and you, um, I, I just couldn't do it. Like I could not be the reason that anybody felt the way my mom felt. Wouldn't, yeah. I couldn't bring myself to do that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think back then too, you know, Valium and, and Percocet, all those mood altering drugs were just brand new, you know? So nobody really knew the effects of prescribing these kinds of things. Yeah. And my mom became addicted to it very quickly. I actually heard about AG1 on another podcast. I started to use it, and I wasn't completely consistent with it. But then AG1 came to me and asked if I'd like to do an ad for them. And I thought, okay, I will, and I'll use this as a, an excuse to really try. Do it every day. And now I do. I drink AG1 every morning when I get up. And you can, too. When I first got it, I thought, uh, I don't get enough nutrients like in my diet. This, this should help with that. And it really has. Drinkag1.com forward slash juice box. Get five free travel packs and a year's supply of vitamin D with your first order. AG1 is raising the standard for quality in the supplement category and is a foundational nutritional supplement that delivers comprehensive nutrients to support whole body health. Since 2010, they've improved their formula 52 times in the pursuit of making the best foundational nutritional supplement possible. That happens through high-quality ingredients and rigorous standards. Check it out, won't you? Drinkag1.com forward slash juice box. And if you just want to support the podcast and you already drink AG1, just get your next order at my link. So if you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get your free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Once again, drinkag1.com forward slash juice box links in the show notes links at juiceboxpodcast.com. And my mom became addicted to it very quickly. Mm -hmm. And that was her life for a good five years or more, you know? Yeah. That was so from she was, the doctor was, giving her that stuff. Oh yeah. yeah. Our general doctor, our little, um, he came from Kentucky. His name was Dr. Broadus. I still remember. And he had this heavy Kentucky accent and um, they had no idea. So of course, you know, make you feel better. Here's something for sleeping. Here's something for, you know, take the edge off and mm -hmm. all these things, but you know, very highly addictive, you know? Yeah. Crazy. Uh, I'm sorry. You had, uh, you mentioned another sister. Is there any type on with her? 
No, she, um, she doesn't have uh, type one, but she was diagnosed in her forties with uh, Parkinson's. So she's disabled. And then she recently got diagnosed with breast cancer. So um, she's had her share as well, but you know, they've always tested her along the way and she's very aware of it, but never, never had any issues with that. And now looking back in hindsight, I know your mother, your father, was there any autoimmune stuff with them or grandparents, anything you can see now that you know better how to look? No, my grandparents lived into their nineties. My grandmother did have terrible rheumatoid arthritis. So, and I think now that is considered autoimmune and she was uh, literally in her wheelchair when she when she passed away because she couldn't walk anymore. So, um, so there was that, um, I think on my dad's side, there was some type two, but really no looking yeah, back. I'm going to call the RA the string there. Yeah. My, um, my dad died early on too. He was only 46 and he died of leukemia. Okay. And so people in my family have died relatively young. I mean, my brother at 37, my dad at 46, my mom was 72. She had a bowel perforation and died that way. And it's just me and my sister. That's all I have left. Wow. That's really something. I know. Yeah. Jeez. I I know you don't realize the things that can get you when you're older. My mom had like diverticulitis once, maybe, I don't know, six, seven years ago. And where my brother and I took her to the hospital and we were waiting outside. I said, you know, this could easily kill her. And, it and, could. and he's yeah. like, what? And I was like, I'm telling you, man, I was like, this is, this could be it, you know? And then, uh, she, it took her six months to bounce back from that. It was so interesting to watch how that, just that, that thing, three days in the hospital, couple weeks to recover. And then it just, it, it like, it turned her down. I don't know another way mm-hmm. to say it, like it aged her very quickly. Right. It, That's how my mother died. She had diverticulitis too, and she had a bowel perforation and there was nobody there with her. And, uh, like three days later, somebody's knocking on her door. She's not answering. So the police went in and there she was, uh, totally septic in her bed. She was barely alive. And, you know, she's in the hospital my sister and I are there. And, um, the doctor said, basically, you know, we've tried to, to cure the infection, but it's too far gone and we can't do anything for her. So, you know, between my sister and I, we decided, okay, you know, it's time to let her go. You know, being alive is really weird. Um, it just really is. Okay. So you are, you're back there, you're making donuts, you're selling booze. You're like, I can't keep doing this. I can't even pay my bills this way. And then tell me again, you be, you go to school for, dental assisting by the way does you do you need to connect your uh transmitter to your phone no i have uh let's see where is that I not at? the sound what what sound that is, is that? the sound yeah, oh, yeah. you know the sound yeah i hear it every time on your podcast i'm like oh there's the sound it makes me feel like you started a new dexcom sensor and it's waiting for you to pair it to the phone is that what's happening no, uh, no? so it's out of range my range is set at 7110 and i'm right now 147 oh and that's actually but... your that's the alarm you have set that's the alarm I have set. I yeah. On, on, so okay. I recently had to go to jury duty. And so um, they're, they're questioning the jury to pick a jury for this trial. So I get selected for a trial and everything's quiet in the courtroom. And there it goes beeping <laughs> and I'm like, Oh my God, this is going to be awful. 
how am I going to, you know, even if you turn the sound off on your phone or turn it down, it still beeps. Like I turn my phone off, my sound off, and you can still hear it. It vibrates and you get the vibration then. So I had to tell the bailiff, you know, this is something, I mean, I have to have it. So, you know, you guys are just going to have to bear with me. And he's like, oh, that's okay. That's okay. So (laughs) anyway, oh, so you changed the sound for, so that's your high alarm sound. And our, on Arden's phone, that's the sound that means pair the sensor on the G6, which... Oh, how interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Pair the transmitter when a new transmitter, which none of this is going to matter uh, with G7, by the way, because the transmitters and the sensors are all going to be one one piece and you'll just throw them away every 10 days. Crazy. I can't wait. Yeah. That's going to be great. Very how long do you think it's going to take for us to get it? Well, I mean, it's in parts of Europe now. I'm, okay. gu- I'm guessing... I'm guessing inside the first quarter of 2023. Okay. Yeah, that's my guess. Nice. Okay, so, all right, so you go to, I'm sorry, dental assistant school, is that right? Dental assisting school. So you work in a dental office, and you're like the person that does, you sit next to the dentist or on the other side of the dentist between the patient is is between Mm -hmm. you and the dentist. And so you're doing suctioning, Maybe you're mixing amalgam for fillings. Maybe you're mixing, um, you know, uh, paste for something else. Um, you clean the equipment. You um, get patients seated mm-hmm. and put the bibs on and do all that stuff. So I did that. I worked in a periodontal practice, which is a gum surgeon. So I did that for a good five, six years. And then I got to thinking, you know, for the rest of my life, I'm going to be working on people's mouths. I mean, like you were saying, is this what I really want to do the rest of my life? Mm -hmm. You know, and I was making, I think, $1,200 a month at the beginning and still $1,200 a month later. And it's a small dental practice, which is like a a small business. You know, they can only afford to pay you so much. So I felt like it was a go nowhere job, you know, as much as it was fun and I enjoyed being with people and the interaction and stuff. I'm like, I think I could do more, Mm -hmm. you know? So um, I decided to go to nursing school and, um, I, by that time I was living in California. So my husband now was, um, a man I met at the bakery. He was a baker. Mm-hmm. Imagine a type one with a baker, right? It doesn't <laughs> seem to work, but, um, anyways, I met him there. He was, uh, recently divorced and he was only 23. You know, I was probably 20 at the time. And um, we started talking and working together. And I enjoyed his sense of humor. But I knew he was separated from his wife. And he had two children. So at 23 years old, he had two children, a house, a job, a career, you know, this whole thing. And I was like, wow, really impressed. He had done so much at such a young age. And, um, then he asked me out and I said, well, you're separated, but does that mean you're going to get back with your wife? Cause I don't want to be part of this, yeah. you know, after having gone through this with my dad, you know, <laughs> I don't want to be the other woman, <laughs> yeah. you know? 
so um, he said, no, I don't think there's any, any hope for this relationship. So, you know, I love children. So he had, at the time, the kids were small. They were both toddlers. And I loved kids. And so um, there we were, you know, going out and the kids doing stuff with the kids. And it was wonderful. But my mom was like, uh, he's damaged goods. You know, he, um, you shouldn't be with him. He has children and you're, you know, setting yourself up for a world of heartache and this whole thing. Of course, by then she was pretty much against the whole institution of marriage. And, <laughs> yeah. so, and she was high but as a I, kite, by the way, Lisa. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, high as a kite. You're right. Yeah. So um, anyways, she met him, but she didn't like him. And um, Tom was having trouble because his ex-wife, my husband's name is Tom, mm. uh, his ex-wife was uh, seeing somebody else. So that's how their relationship broke up, too. So um, anyways, he couldn't handle that because the guy was with his children. And so he had a sister that lived in California. And he said, I'm really thinking about moving to California uh, to get away from all this and, you know, start new and fresh. And, you know, will you come with me? And I was like, no, I'm not leaving here. I just started, you know, doing my prereqs for nursing school. I was in uh, night school, working all day, going to school at night. And then I would meet him after class. We'd go to a bar, have some drinks. And, you know, it was this like burning the candle at both ends thing. Yeah. And then um, February rolled around, which is like the worst month if you're in a snow area. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Christmas is done and people are kind of depressed, nothing to look forward to, you know, the days are cold and, you know, whatever. Is, so, this, is this baby making time in Boston, Lisa? Well, <laughs> so Tom mentions it again, moving to California, and I'm like, I'm in, you know. <laughs> so we pack our stuff. We hop in my Toyota Tercel. And we drive to California in like out of nowhere. And we start calling people along the way. Like I call my job. Hey, I'm not coming to work today or ever. <laughs> We're moving to California. And they're like, what? You know? So when I talked to my mom, she was just out of her mind because not only was I going to California, but going to California with Tom, mm -hmm. who was damaged goods, you know? And so, um, yeah, we moved in with his sister. I think we were there for maybe two weeks. He got a job right away at a bakery. And um, then I, I got a job as a dental assistant in Beverly Hills. And uh, again, a dental surgeon, a uh, 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 gum surgeon, same, same kind of practice. Right. And um, then again, I was like, hmm, okay, here we are, the two of us. And um, Tom's working hard and, you know, the money a baker can make is, is limited. And, you know, the, the old days of a small bake shop and everybody goes to it, all that stuff, you know, big box stores come into play and you can't sell things as cheaply as they can. And people don't really know the difference. And so, you know, his money making capacity is limited. So I knew that, if we were going to buy a house, if we were going to have a family, if we were going to do any of these things that I dreamt of doing, mm -hmm. I was going to have to make more money. And so um, back to school, I went and 
went to nursing school and he told me, you go to nursing school, I will support you during nursing school and you don't have to work. And I was like, oh my God, that's wonderful. Yeah, I'll do that. Right. You know, we had a little apartment, you know, we didn't have a lot of expenses back then. And so um, I did, I went to a diploma nursing school, which is a two year and you get a nursing license, you sit for boards and you get a license, but it's the minimum amount of schooling. They don't even have these schools anymore. And um, then you can work. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's what I did. And I started working in a neonatal intensive care unit in Los Angeles. And um, it just built from there. I loved it. I love being around the babies. I loved all the technology. I loved being with the people. My coworkers were wonderful. It was a really small um, environment and everybody was super close. Yeah. And um, I love the work. I've always loved the work. And so consequently, I stayed in the neonatal intensive care for my entire career, 32 years of uh, nursing. And then I'm going to say about... 15 years before I retired, I was thinking again, when can I retire? And thinking, okay, I'm going to be doing this job for another 15, 20 years. Is this what I want to do for that period of time? Mm -hmm. And my son was already, you know, grown in, uh, you know, high school. And, um, you know, I just was like, no, I, I don't want to stay at the bedside anymore. And I'm in this, this communication book at work and there's a flyer for a scholarship to become a nurse practitioner and they'll pay all your expenses in uh, exchange. You have to work for them for two years after you graduate right. to pay it back. Right. And I was like, Hmm, maybe I'll do this, <laughs> you know? So sure enough, I applied and they gave me a full scholarship and um, I went to nurse practitioner school while I was still working full time. And um, then I did that for another 15 years before I retired. And so I retired when I was 62. um, And I I loved it. It was a great career. How, um, how many children did you and Tom have together? So we didn't have any together. Okay. So you said your son, you were talking about Tom's kids. Yeah. So okay. Tom, um, Tom has two from his first marriage and, um, he had a vasectomy after his second child. Cause he didn't want to have any more children. Mm-hmm. And when he got married, he thought it was going to be forever. You know, we all do. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, when he and I got together, you know, I hadn't had any children and that's all I wanted to do was have children. And so, um, he could have his vasectomy reversed. So we did that. Um, and it's a microsurgery. And so they did that. And then his sperm was still kind of slow. And so we weren't getting pregnant. We weren't getting pregnant. So after maybe a year, a year and a half of trying, we um, started to see a fertility specialist. And uh, I got on Clomid. That's the first thing they try. And, um, so, and back then, you know, you have to figure this was early Mm nineties. So like IVF and, um, uh, you know, 
infertility treatment was still kind of young mm-hmm. and not all that successful, but um, it was super expensive too. Yeah. And insurance wasn't covering it at all. So um, we struggled with that for quite a while. And when after eight months of doing like um, the, you know, relatively easy things to try, you know, the doctor said, look, you're not pregnant yet. And you have two choices. Either you can try in vitro fertilization, which was a 15% success rate, or you can adopt. And, you know, maybe these are your two options at this point. So I was kind of crushed. I was like, can't we just keep on trying? Like, but how long do you do it? You're putting good money after bad. And um, so uh, between Tom and I, we talked about it. And I said, you know, I don't care where our baby comes from. You know, I just want a baby, Mm -hmm. you know? So um, we decide to adopt. We find a, a small adoption agency in Santa Barbara. And they're very, very nice. And we put it in our profile. And back then, open adoption was kind of a newish kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And you kind of uh, build a profile of yourselves as a couple. You have this picture book. And the potential adoptive mother comes to the agency and goes through all these profiles and picks. Yeah. And so probably six months after we signed up, um, we get the call that um, somebody has chosen us and I was just so excited. You know, Mm -hmm. we um, go to Las Vegas, which is not far from here, five hour drive uh, to meet this, this girl. She's 28 years old. She has a 15 month old and she's pregnant again. And she knows she can't afford even the 15 month old, let alone, this second baby that she's having. And so uh, the reason why she picks us, not because I'm a baby nurse, not because of any of those things. She picks us because Tom is a baker and she likes to bake. (laughs) So of all things to attract, you know, so that was wonderful. We got to know her. She's five months pregnant uh, with a boy. I wanted a girl only because Tom had two boys already, but, um, and I thought this would be something different, but I was ecstatic. Oh, it's something she, different, Lisa. Don't oh, it's something different. <laughs> Don't You're worry. Right yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> so, um, we get to know her, we, we spend time with her and, uh, then when it's time for her to have our son, she, um, uh, says we can come to the delivery. Uh, Tom has to stay outside, but I can be with her. Mm-hmm. And so I did. I sat with her, and and as she's going through her labor, she's like, "I think Tom can come in now," you know. And so uh, we're both there when Zach is born, and it is the best day of my life, you know, the best day of my life. And he comes out and so beautiful and. I, you know, you're afraid, you're afraid that the adopt, the, the birth mother is going to say, I changed my mind. Right. He's such a beautiful baby. But she turned around and looked at us and said, look, at the beautiful baby I made for you. Mm. And I, I, it still brings tears to my eyes because it was such a beautiful moment. And right then I knew she wasn't going to change her mind. Mm -hmm. She um, wanted us to have him and 
it was the best thing ever. That's wonderful. The best thing ever. And I know you're adopted. Yeah. And to, to be able to tell Zach the story of how he was born and what happened and, uh, you know, it's priceless, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, we took pictures of his sister holding him and, and all of us together. And, you know, it was, it was wonderful. It was, it was wonderful. I could not get him out of that hospital quick enough. She wanted to have him circumcised. And I was like, Oh my God, that's going to take another 12 hours. You know, (laughs) I just wanted to bring him home. I just wanted to bring him home. I was so excited. And did did you keep a relationship with her? Yes. You did. Yes. So we kept in touch with her. Um, uh, she, we, we arranged this before he was born. When would she want pictures of him? So they suggested maybe once a year, you send pictures and maybe give an update to the birth mother. And um, so that's what we decided ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And um, so, and plus he had this biological sister too, sure. his half sister, Alex, who was 15 months older than him. So they were very close in age and they look very much alike though. Um, Zach's birth mother said they had two different fathers. Mm -hmm. So anyways, um, we kept in touch with her and every uh, February we would send her pictures. So we'd have his Halloween pictures, his Christmas pictures, his school picture, you know, whatever else milestones happened that year. And she would get the pictures. And um, if I had any questions about, you know, things with family history, you mm-hmm. know, she would always fill it in for me and, um, and all of this, you know, so. Does he know um, her? Does he, does he know yes. her now? How old is, how old is Zach now? Okay. Zach died. Oh, Zach died. I know. I know. I'm sorry oh, to, no, Lisa, to bring I'm sorry. that on you. Oh my gosh. Yeah. March, 2020, uh, Zach died, um, of a drug overdose. Alisa, you're going to make me cry. Hold on a second. I know. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's so sad. Yeah. He, um, I think he, um, had some issues with his adoption, you know, over the years, you know, we would take him to see therapists because, um, he was a super smart kid And, um, his mind worked in a very different way. He could tell just by looking at something, how it was put together, he could fix anything, you know, Mm -hmm. he just had this really different mind and he was super smart. We knew he was smart right from the beginning because, and I didn't have any experience raising kids. He was my first, but you know, just comparing him to my friend's children or, you know, other kids in the school or whatever. I mean, he, he just was different, you know, he thought differently and he, he was a super happy baby. Mm -hmm. And then, um, I kept him home for the first year. I was able to stay home with him for six months because I knew I wanted to have a child for so long. I saved up all my vacation time, saved up all my holiday time, everything I had so I could stay home with him. Yeah. And so I was able to stay home for six years and that are six years, I wish six months. And then um, I had somebody come to the house and, and stay with him for the first year because I didn't want him getting any sicknesses or anything. I was so protective because 
what I did for work, I only saw the worst of the worst. So, you know, you're very cautious with your own children. And so um, anyways, I sent him to a neighborhood daycare. He loved it. And he was so smart that I thought there's no rush getting him into school. Tom was born in January. Zach was born in January. Tom was born um, January 2nd. And his mom, he was the third of three children. So by the time he came around, his mom was like, this kid's going to school as early as I can get him. <laughs> but Tom always talked about being the smallest person in his class and, and, the, and um, you know, socially immature. And so um, I thought, I don't want that for Zach. You know, his right. birthday is January 22nd. Tom's is January 2nd. And so I thought, I'll put him, I'll wait another year to send him to school. But I'm not sure. Maybe I should have sent him to school a little bit sooner because he was so used to that daycare that he loved Mm -hmm. that his transition into school and all the things that you have to um, acclimate yourself to, it was very difficult for him, you know? And then in his preschool, they had a Mother's Day tea, I remember, and they were doing a performance for the parents. And I taped the whole thing and um, they were singing these songs and doing these gestures. Zach was singing the songs too, doing all the gestures, but he was walking around the room while he did it. And all the other kids were sitting in their chairs, you know, so well behaved. Mm -hmm. And there was Zach, you know, marching to his own drummer, doing what, what he was supposed to, but doing it in his own Zach way. You know, and this was really the story of his life. You know, everything was hard for him because he had to conform. You know, school was hard for him. He he was super smart. If he liked the teacher, if he liked the subject, he would just A plus. If he didn't like the teacher, if the teacher was like my way or the highway kind of person, he didn't get along with those people at all. And so F, he would get an F, Mm. you know. So Tom or myself was at the school every single day because there would always be something, you know, whether there was an issue on the playground, whether there was an issue in the classroom, whatever it was. So we felt like we want the teacher to know we're on your side. We're working with you. Please, as a team, let's help Zach to get through this. And some teachers were really great about it. And some teachers not so good, you know? So it was a struggle his, his whole time. And I had the school testing him because, um, back then too, it was a brand new thing, ADHD. And so he was diagnosed with that early on. And the teachers were like, he can't come back to the classroom unless you put him on some medication. So we started you know, he started with Ritalin, then he went to Adderall, then he, and, you know, this is not a perfect system. Yeah. These drugs are, they help, but over time, the, the reaction to it and the, the success with it wanes, they start a new medication. You know, he had been to doctor after doctor after doctor. I mean, I'm a medical person, so I'm going to find a solution to this, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, I had the school testing him. They said, nope, there was nothing else wrong with him. But I had no idea that if your child has something wrong with them, the school is kind of motivated not to find it because then they have to accommodate it. And so 
somebody told me that when Zach was in high school and I'm like, Oh, I had no idea. Mm -hmm. So I was taking Zach to a therapist and um, the therapist said, I think there's more here that we haven't found. So he sent Zach to a, um, a, what was it? A neuro psychologist, forensic psychologist. And she did three days worth of testing on Zach. She produced this 60 page report and she said he is a classic case of Asperger's. And so it, it's a spectrum disease. Yeah. Uh, some people have very mild symptoms. Some people have very um, debilitating symptoms. And so, and it's a form of autism. Mm-hmm. And she said he's a classic case. He was in his last semester of high school when he got that diagnosis. And so I don't know if it would have helped us earlier on, Mm -hmm. you know, I I don't think it would have changed much, but at that point it made perfect sense to me. Once I did the research on it and reading the 60 page report, his IQ is 146, which I mean, I have no idea what my IQ is, but he runs circles around the two of us, you know, and I said, no wonder why he can't understand what we're talking about. You know, he's in a whole different plane, you know. And so, you know, it explained so much about Zach, you know. And um, his birth mother would never divulge anything about his birth father. For some reason, she was very protective about him. And so um, only after he died did she tell us that um, – who he was. And it's so interesting because his name was, his last name was Nelson, the, the, um, the birth father. And my dad's name was Nelson. My dad hated his name. He said people used to tease him all the time and call him Nellie. So when Zach was born, I didn't want to call him Nelson, but his middle name is Nelson. Mm-hmm. And when we were trying to decide what name to pick for Zach, the three of us, Zach's birth mother and the two of us were trying to decide on names. And Tom and I had chosen Zach, which uh, his birth mother said, you know, that's, that's fine. I love that name. And I said, I'd like to name him after my dad, his middle name of Nelson. And she said, oh, that would be wonderful. And then after Zach died, she said, I think I can tell you now that his biological father's last name is Nelson. Hmm. And I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> you know, so many things happen that you think are, you know, where do these things come from? Sure. You know, is it all predestined? And I always told Zach, you were meant to come to us. You know, you were supposed to be with us because God knew I would never give up on you. And I never will. Lisa, you know? I, so I have to ask you, is Tom with us still? Oh yes, Tom's yeah, with us. Tom, okay, mm-hmm. all right. So finally, somebody's still alive. Um, okay. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, I. It's interesting how if I listen, I don't think it's any uh, any great secret if when people are listening back to this, like I'm not saying much because you're. I'm fascinated by looking at people's lives in reverse, and yeah. and so you go back 45 years ago, and you're the one that nobody would have bet on. You know what I mean? And then you meet right. all of these people along the way and create these bonds and have children and 
and uh, I mean, go through all these experiences, both very like average and, you know, I met a guy up to strange and, you know, on, on you know, something you don't hear about every day. And all those people like fall off in one way or another, but you're the constant somehow. Yeah. That's fascinating. You know? Well, and I always said through the struggle comes the growth. So, you know, in comparing my life with Zach's life. So when we had Zach, Zach was, you know, was such a treasure to me. Sure. I mean, I had waited for him for so long. And when he was born, like I said, it was the best day of my life. And so I treated him that way. Mm-hmm. He was a treasure to me. And it was my full time, you know, I'm going to do the best I can to raise this kid the best I can. I had so many struggles in my life. I didn't want him to have any of it. But then looking back, I think that's what made me the person I am. Yeah, yeah. So for Zach not to have any struggles, he hasn't had any experience with it. So he doesn't know how to problem solve it. So when he does have struggles in his life, he doesn't know how to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, I never allowed him to do it because I was doing it for him. You know, so, you know, in Zach's drug addiction, Tom and I became very involved in Al-Anon and um, that teaches you to look at yourself and see what was my part of it. And if I can put myself in a part of it, that would be the part, you know, I couldn't ever watch him struggle because I could prevent it. He didn't have to struggle, Mm -hmm. not like me. He didn't have to struggle. So, you know, but, but the struggle is important because the struggle makes you strong, Yeah, you know? So uh, a lesson to learn, you know? Mm -hmm. No, I I hear you. Um, I I didn't ask you anything about your diabetes. (laughs) Oh, that's okay. Go ahead. (laughs) I mean, I just, you know, sometimes I feel like people are like, is there going to be any diabetes in this diabetes podcast? (laughs) Um, Yeah. But I don't, I don't know. Like to me, the background of the whole story is that you did all this with type one and you're, I mean, how would you describe your health right now? I think I'm in great health. I mean, to have had type one diabetes for 45 years to be diagnosed back when I was without technology really, and to not have one single complication, I think it's extraordinary, Yeah, you know, and you know, I often get in the Facebook group and will say to people, it can happen. You know, I think it was shit luck for me, but, um, and with my brother, with every complication with me without any complication. And I often say that maybe Tony had every complication so that I didn't have to have any, you know, I don't know. I don't know the reason for that because, you know, far back to when I can remember A1Cs coming into existence, I remember A1Cs in the high nines, 9.6, I remember my doctor saying to me, hey, you know, uh, we got to do something about this. And I'm like, okay. You know, I didn't really know much about it. Being a medical person too, first of all, in the field I'm in, neonatal intensive care, neonates don't get diabetes. Nobody is born with diabetes. So it's, it just doesn't happen. There's a type of diabetes 
that neonates get. It's called diabetes insipidus, which is a completely different thing. But um, neonates do not get it. So I didn't have a lot of knowledge about it. And like I said, I was going along my merry way, taking my two shots a day, you know, testing my blood sugar first thing in the morning. That was it. Yeah. I mean, I didn't do anything. I think I was pretty good about not eating sugar because I was afraid to eat it. Mm -hmm. And then with my brother, with so many complications, I was like, I better listen to what they're saying, you know? And then when he dies, of course, I'm like, what could I do different? You Mm -hmm. know? And then I remember the doctor, the endocrinologist saying to me, uh, maybe we should think about a pump for you. I'm like, what's a pump, you know? Mm And I had no idea about it. So I wasn't keeping up on any of it, even though I'm in the field, I I wasn't doing it. You know, it it was a part of my life and it's always been a part of my life, but it's not my life, you know? So, and again, it's not going to stop me from doing anything. And I oftentimes will respond that way in the Facebook group, you know, you can do anything you want. Diabetes is not a reason to not do it, you know? you can find a way. And if you want to do it, you'll find a way. And, you know, I'm not a smart person. I, you know, I would say my superpower, if anything is common sense. If it doesn't make sense to me, I got to think of a way that it can make sense to me, you know? So even in school, I, I struggled, you know, I hated school. So going back to school was a big deal for me. And then going back when I was became a nurse practitioner, I hadn't been in school for 20 years. Hmm. If it hadn't been for Zach, I don't think I would have made it through my master's program because Zach was teaching me all the technology that I needed to get through that program, you know? Hmm. And he was very into computers, very into all of it. I mean, he taught me Microsoft Word. He taught me Excel. He taught me all of these things that I had no knowledge of. And, you know, we had a home computer, but I wasn't doing anything like that on it, you know? And so, you know, doing a a distance learning program too for my uh, nurse practitioner license, I did that. And um, so everything was online. So you had to have great uh, computer skills. And I would be every day, Zach, help me with this. Zach, help me with that. So I told him when I graduated, this is for you too, because I would have never gotten through it without you, you know? How, how, at what age did he start using when you look back? Yeah, he was out of high school. He, um, he was an Eagle Scout. Mm -hmm. Um, he was not your typical drug addict. And, you know, I've since learned that, you know, drug addiction crosses all barriers, you know, and, you know, being a medical person too, it's very hard for you to talk about these things at work because, you know, your kids should be better than that, you know? So there was a stigma to it for me as well. He used, uh, started using dust off. Do you know what dust off is? No, I don't know that. You clean your computer with it. You clean your keyboard. It's the compressed air that comes in the can. Okay. So, 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 so he would inhale that and it would, uh, I think the truest thing he ever said about his addiction was that it turned off his mind. And I think for that 30 seconds that he was high and passed out, his mind was quiet. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the only time his mind was quiet, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's what he was addicted to. And uh, he started using probably 
in he, he died when he was 29. So I'm going to say his early 20s. So he was out of high school. He was, you know, no peer pressure, none of that. Mm -hmm. He used by himself. None of his friends knew he was using. We didn't even know he was using until one day we found him passed out in his bed and a can of dust off in his hand. And my husband said, what is going on? And, And then we started doing some investigation. And Zach is a very honest person. So we're like, you know, what is happening here? And he's like, uh, I use it to get high. Or what are you talking about? You know, neither one of us had any idea about it, you know? And I mean, smoke pot like everybody else, (laughs) you know, why why you drink like, like I did, you know, I mean, why are you doing this? You know? And he just has a very curious nature about him. So I'm sure he tried it once. He loved it. And he just kept on doing it. So I'm going to say he was in and out of rehab, probably five years total. And sober about two and a half of that five years. And then as soon as he would get out of the rehab, he'd be right back to using. And then at the end, you know, of course, it was during COVID. And um, he died March 4th, 2020. And it's very dangerous stuff, this uh, dust off, because it it, when you hold the can to spray it, it gets very cold. Mm -hmm. And when you're inhaling it, your lungs freeze and your brain freezes. So it's very dangerous. You could die. They say the first time you use it, you could die the 500th time you use it. And sure enough, he had used it a million times. And this time. I just never heard. I've never heard of that before. I had never heard of it either, but it's very common when you start getting into this world. Um, It's all over the internet about how people die with it, how they've started putting it um, under lock and key in certain stores. Because when Zach didn't have the money to buy it, he would steal it. And so, and it's, it's at every 7-Eleven, it's, it's so readily available. Every Walmart has it. Every Target has it, you know? So he asked me once I was going to Costco. I don't know if you guys have Costco. Of course. But um, I was going to Costco. I said, do you need anything at Costco? And he said, you know, can you get me some dust off for the computer? I said, oh, Zach, they sell it in like a six pack there. We won't use that much dust off in a year. Mm -hmm. I had no idea that's what he was doing with it. You know, of course, I didn't get it because I was like, we'll buy a can of it. We don't need a six pack of Mm -hmm. it, you know. Mm -hmm. And then later, looking back on that, I'm like, oh, he was looking for a bargain for his dust (laughs) Oh, you don't want <laughs> you know? to spend money unnecessarily. Pennywise, yeah. you know? Wow, that's, that's crazy. How did his birth mother react to the um, addiction? Did you ever tell her? Yeah, I did tell her. I was looking for connections. Mm-hmm. I was looking for connections that maybe she could help me with his birth father. Maybe his birth father was a drug addict. Maybe he came by it naturally. Right, right. Maybe this was something that he was predisposed to. I, I, I was looking for anything I could to try to help him, you know? Mm-hmm. And she was like, I, I don't know of 
of him ever using drugs or okay. alcohol. Um, so that was no help, but she knew about it. My- and um, I'd keep her posted on, okay, he's in another rehab. And, you know, he kept in touch with his birth sister on Facebook. They, they had a relationship. Mm-hmm. And so when Zach died, you know, uh, we could only have 30 people at his funeral. We couldn't have any service for him when he died, which was very unfortunate because, mm-hmm. you know, the whole world closed down. Right. And then, so we waited a year and on his one year anniversary, we had a service. We could only have 30 people at it, but his birth sister came from Utah. She drove by herself and she came to a service. It was such an honor to have her there. I was able to take her back to our house. I was able to show her that he had all her pictures and here's all the stuff from when we were looking through pictures of him growing up. And when Zach was 10 years old, he said, I want to meet my birth mother. And I said, okay. You know, so it was spring break and I got in touch with her. I said, Zach wants to meet you. She said, okay. And we hopped in the car, he and I, and we drove to Utah and he met her. He spent three days there with her. And then he came home and he's like, I'm good. You know, the whole family smoked. He's like, I, I can't take it. There's so much cigarette smoke, you know? Mm-hmm. And he, he could see, I think, Scott, the life he would have had versus the life he had. And once he saw it, he was like, I'm good. Yeah. You know, and we still kept in touch with her. Um, When he graduated high school, he had, he had his high school graduation one day and his Eagle Scout ceremony the next day, because we had people from out of town coming and we're like, we're going to do it all at one time. And so I, I asked him, would you like your birth mother to come and, and your sister to come? And he said, no, that's okay. It's fine. You know? Mm -hmm. So, Okay. She didn't come and and I invited her to come to Zach's funeral, but she didn't. She said, I don't think I can. She was just a mess when I called her to say Zach was dead. Um, She felt very guilty. She felt very like maybe if she hadn't given him up for adoption, maybe things would have been different. Maybe if, you know, we all do it. The what ifs, you know? Yeah. And so the two of us share that bond with Zach, she as being the person who gave birth to him. I mean, we, we love him equally, you Mm -hmm. know? And so we can kind of share the grief too, because she loves him just as much as I did, you know, he was a part of her and, uh, you know, he, she gave him up for adoption because she wanted him to have a better life. I mean, that was the bottom line. I only, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. I I was going to say. He understood that about her. Yeah. He understood it. He never like was angry at her about, because when we were together, I said to his birth mother, could you explain to Zach why you gave him up for adoption? Because she kept Alex. So why did you keep Alex and not me? Mm -hmm. You know? And she said, Zach, if you were born first, I would have kept you. Right. But I couldn't do two children. I could barely do one, yeah. you know? So I think he understood that. I think that was good for him to hear that from her, right. you know? I um I only ever had a couple-hour phone call with um the sister of my birth mother after my birth mother had died. And I honestly don't remember much about the phone call other than she told me that giving me away ruined her life. 
Like, oh. It just, and I was like, okay, you, like, I don't know what to do with that, you know? Right. <clears throat> but it, um, is it just something she regretted forever and it had, um, had very bad impacts on her health. Mm. And so it's strange because someone's telling you, you know, for me, there were no pictures going back and forth or anything like that. This was, you know, not anything I had a connection with growing up at all. And so it's like someone's telling you a story about your mom, but it feels like it's a story about a stranger. Well, and I was going to say that when Zach met his birth mother, it was like he was meeting a stranger, like he would meet anybody else on the street. Sure. You know? Yeah. No, that I understand completely. Um, Lisa, this has been really great. I, I, I didn't realize what we were going to talk about today. You, you wanted to, in your note, you said you just wanted to tell people to be hopeful and, and they, they could do anything with diabetes. So I think you said that, um, but without actually ever saying it, I want to tell you that the most unbelievable thing you said during this over hour we were talking is that a Toyota Torcel made it all the way from Massachusetts to California. <laughs> It did. It did. It was brand new, though. It was the first new car I ever had, and I had bought it on my own. Uh, I just, I thought this story is certainly going to end up with them setting that car on fire in Montana somewhere or something. I just no, no, <laughs> that's no. amazing. One thing I did want to talk about, Please. Scott, was um, uh, I love to travel. That was the reason why I really wanted to come on the podcast because every day in the Facebook group, somebody is traveling for the first time with a type one diabetic, whether it's a child or themselves or whatever it is. How do I keep the insulin cold? Uh, How do I do this? What do I have to pack? What about TSA? What about all this? And we travel a lot Mm -hmm. and I have made every mistake in the book when it comes to traveling. The worst mistake was a trip to Indonesia when we're on a 24-hour flight and two hours into the flight, I realize I have forgotten my insulin. It's oh my in the fridge. God. Oh, my God. At my condo. And I was said to my husband, at first, I just like broke out in a cold sweat myself. And then I'm like, oh, how do I even tell him? He is going to freak out. Mm-hmm. And so i like, okay, I have to tell you something. I forgot my insulin in the fridge. He's like, what? (laughs) (laughs) What are we going to do? Lisa, what are we going to do? I'm like, okay, just calm down. I can write my own prescription. As a nurse practitioner, you have prescription privileges. Mm -hmm. So I have a prescription pad in my bag. I can write my own prescription if I can just find a place to get it filled, you know, and, and the more I thought about it, the more I'm like, you know what, there's diabetics all over the world. It's not exclusive to the United States, you know? So the people who are in front of us in the plane overhear the conversation and they're Indonesian. And so they turn around and they say, you know, there's pharmacies in the airport. You can buy insulin in the airport. I'm like, oh. Problem solved, you know? Really? So we go to the airport. Yeah. And uh, they have some cockamamie type of insulin I never even heard of. So nothing like Humalog, right? And at this point, I'm on a pump. And um, and so I have I have all my pump supplies, but all I need is the missing link, you know. And so um, they said, no, you're going to have to go to a, a bigger pharmacy, a bigger something. So we're on a connection. 
So we hop on the next plane because we have a couple uh, connections to make. And then uh, when we get to where we're going, we have a 12 hour layover. So we hop in a cab and go to the closest hospital and we go into the ER and say, you know, I need some insulin. I don't have any. I'm type one diabetic. They're like, okay. They bring me five vials, insulin pens of Humalog. And I said, how much is that? $32. <laughs> You're like, hey, I'm saving money by leaving my insulin at home. $32. Yeah. I'm like, are you kidding me? Wow. Do you know how much this would cost in the United States? You know? And it was that easy, Scott. That's amazing. We went back to the airport and went along our merry way. You know? Wow, that's really something. It, of so all the stories my, that I didn't think were going to end well, that was the one. And all your other stories, I was like, oh, this will be a nice story. <laughs> then it never was. Oh, my God. Are you okay, Lisa? I I am. Yeah. I Why am. is I that? Am. I, I, Scott, I don't know. I think I, I feel like, you know, all the things that have gone on in my life mm -hmm. have prepared me for who I am today. You know, if it wasn't for these things, I wouldn't be the person I am. I'm sure of it. No, no, you know? I, I, I agree. And, you know. But, why, but, you, but Lisa, why is the person you are not outside, passed out on a stoop? You know what I mean? Like, why did you not go in a different direction? I is don't it know. because you're always helping other people? I'm always helping other people. I, I knew it was my calling. I knew helping other people was my calling because I always felt like I wanted to help somebody. Mm -hmm. like, like my initial career choice was to become a social worker. I had had a lot of interaction with social workers over the years because of my mom. You know, every time she went into a mental hospital, the social worker would be like, I remember one telling me, get out of that house. You know, you, you, you need to go. Right, right. <laughs> you know, and I was like, Wow, that's interesting, you know, them telling me that. And um, so I wanted to become a social worker. But then when I saw how much money they made, I'm like, oh, no, no, I can't do this. You know, all <laughs> those social workers, they have master's degrees and they mm -hmm. get paid so poorly. Mm -hmm. You know, it's terrible. It's like teachers, you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, they they deserve so much more. So, no, that wasn't even an option but for me. This is so your that, personality, though. Like, I mean, there's yeah. like, there's enough, Lisa, enough bad things have happened to you that if you were on here to say, look, I'm a bit of a mess, you know what I mean? And I'd be like, oh, I understand. But instead, it's not. I mean, like, we've been talking for over an hour. You were diagnosed when you were, you know, 18. Your family had fallen apart. Your mom was a ward of you. Uh, your mm -hmm. siblings were moving out or had diabetes and and then as an adult, you have diabetes, then your brother dies from it, and mm -hmm. and you keep going. You meet a guy who, I mean, is 23 and already has two kids and leaving his family, and, and like, somehow you made that work. And, yeah. and then you, you know, you can't have a kid, and you try those things. Then you adopt a son, and then he has the craziest addiction I've ever heard of in my life, like the oddest thing. Like, you didn't say heroin. You didn't say cocaine. No. That you were like... You were like the stuff you dust your keyboard off with, which, by the way, I don't know if everybody knows. You just turn the keyboard upside down and shake it a little bit. That works fine too. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, um, and so that happens. And then there's this. All this is just compounding. Like you go back to school and you build on top of a. 
I mean, a shaky start at best, right? I mean, I'm not yes. for nothing, but every girl I know who works in a dentist's office is a little wacky. But you seem okay. And so, like, yeah. it's just, I don't, and you don't even know why. That's the part that I, freaks me out. I don't know why. Uh, just like I don't know why I never had a complication from diabetes. I don't yeah. know why. No, I don't. I don't know why. But it is my personality. I mean, I, I'm a middle child, so I'm a, I'm a fixer, you mm -hmm. know, and my nature. That's all it who is. I am. But dumb yeah. luck. Just dumb luck. Yeah. Bobby, yeah. damn. You're all trying so yeah. hard. Just dumb luck. Just hope for dumb luck. I mean, yeah. Really? Yeah. I, I have no explanation for it. I wish I did. You, you should know? be running in circles, screaming and banging your head into a wall. And instead, you're like, I love to travel. <laughs> I love to travel. Yes. In my retirement, that's what we've done, you know? Yeah. And so my longest trip was I did uh, with my husband. 513 miles through Spain last uh, September, October. Mm -hmm. We we backpacked and did the Camino de Santiago. And so I had to pack 60 days worth of pump supplies, glucose tablets, you name it, yeah. the whole thing, you know. And that was the one trip, nothing happened. I, I was so well prepared for it, you know. Many of these trips you know, when you're full-time working, you save up all your time. So you're working the night before you're working, you know, right up until the second you go, you know, and so that you can have all that time for vacation. So preparation mm. is not part of the equation, you know, so you're doing it last minute and that damn insulin being in the fridge, you don't want to take it out to the last minute. Cause you know, you're going to be 24 hours on a plane, you know? So yeah. Yeah. I, I listen. Just, I want to be you. I think everybody listening wants to be you. I want at least your, I don't know. There's some, I don't know. I don't even know how to quantify it. At least we got to find a way to put you in a bottle and, and uh, so we can spray you on people. I have no idea oh, what to say. It's, yeah. it's good for you. I mean, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, no Thank kidding. You. <laughs> I really, Thank you. I really do appreciate you coming and sharing all this with me. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure being here and I love listening to your podcast. Oh, I'm glad. Uh, oh, that's so nice. Thank you. I, I listen. You made me cry when you said the, when you said Zach's mom picked your husband because he was a baker and she liked to bake. I got all yep. filled up and I thought, oh, that's sweet. This will be the 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 emotional pinnacle of this episode right here. And then Jesus, you just, I don't know, Lisa. I I swear to God, you're you're amazing. So thank you very. I just seriously, I'm babbling, but I appreciate you coming on and doing this very much. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. My pleasure. Hey, a big thank you to Lisa for coming on the show and telling us that incredible story. I also want to thank AG1 and remind you to drinkag1.com forward slash juice box. Use the link, get started today, get the free five travel packs and the year supply of vitamin D with your first order and drink AG1 with me every day. Let's drink together, shall we? If you're looking for community around type one or type two diabetes, check out juice box podcast type one diabetes on Facebook. It's a private group with over 40,000 members. There's a conversation happening right now that you will be interested in or that you can help with. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back very soon with another episode of the juice box podcast.